0: I have often wondered what verse of the Bible could produce the most number of unique, life-giving sermons. Have you ever thought of that? I once heard of a man from New Jersey who preached over 30 sermons on John 3.16, Albert Martin, from a verse. But I would suggest tonight that the sermon that could be the longest or the sermon series that could be the longest would come from these words of our Lord in the book of Matthew chapter 16 and that stand as the head and category title for this entire course I will build my church so tonight we are going to study another section of the wonderful works of God in building his church and it's in chapter 14 of your books Who here has read the reading? Who read chapters 12, 13, and 14? One, two, three, four. I did it. Are you going to do it tonight? Yes, sir. Chapter 14 covers the story and the history of the Waldenses. And that story begins with Peter Waldo, who in 1160 to 1170 A.D., About 1,130 years after our Lord Jesus went back to heaven, Peter Waldo was a merchant, a businessman. And he lived in Italy or in France, depending on where the boundaries are drawn. It's difficult to tell in those mountains, that mountainous region between France and Italy. Peter Waldo lived there and finally came to the point where he said, We need to have a Bible. And he paid for the Bible to be translated into French and into Italian. And that story is told in this fascinating book, The History of the Waldensians by James Wiley, a Scottishman who lived 150 years ago. And he tells this story, The History of the Waldenses. And I would like to tell some of that story to you tonight. And I hope it will strengthen your faith. Peter Waldo was a businessman, but he was dedicated to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the people that gathered around him earned the name of the Waldenses. And by that name, they were differentiated from what was called the established church, which we don't like to use the word church for it because the Catholic church, as our dear brother preached to us last week, was a false church. There may have been some true Christians in it for which we are grateful but as we studied two weeks ago, the rise of the papacy, as the Catholic Church began to pull to itself unbiblical, pagan, foolish, backward, and wicked doctrines and practices, it ceased to deserve the title of church. And Peter Waldo was called the leader of the Waldenses or the Waldensians in order to distinguish him from those people who were associated with the dominant religion in Europe at the time, that called the Roman Catholic. The Waldensians were a very poor group of farmers, and they lived largely in the mountains between France and Italy. And in that section of mountains where James Wiley describes in color, the mountains form almost a fortress. In fact, he says, it would be hard to imagine a man devising a better fortress than what God had made for them in those mountains. And he actually traveled to the mountains and walked on them before he wrote this book. And some of the stories we're going to hear tonight, you'll see why those mountains are so important. Because as Peter Waldo lived in those mountains, and as his followers lived in the mountains, they carried on a simple form of Christianity that dated back to the time of Peter Waldo. Because what you're about to learn is that the Waldensian story started before Peter Waldo. And about 50 years before Peter Waldo, there was a document, at least written this way. <coughs> "Noble lessons." Maybe you can see in there the word noble lesson. That's a transliteration into English. You might find it in different ways. But I found it online and I read it. It was written before Peter Peter Waldo was born. This noble lesson. And it is remarkable. Because the Waldensians, who before Peter Waldo, what were they called? One source called them, I think it was this guy, called them the Leonists. The Waldensians actually followed this noble lessees, the noble lesson, which was a document they had written up to show what they believed. Remarkably enough, In the noble ACs, they promote what appears to be believer's baptism. And that's remarkable because the Roman Catholic Church was baptizing babies and had been for almost a thousand years, several hundred years. And in this noble ACs, before Peter Waldo was born, we have Two references that sound like it's believer's baptism. And even more than that, they say throughout this document, they say, they, they give in the first two pages of the document, a summary of the Old Testament. And then in the next pages of the document, they describe in this fashion, repeating, the old law said we shall not kill, but the new law under Christ forbids even anger. That category is found repeatedly through the noble lessees, and of course, that gives rise to the teaching of the doctrine of the law of Christ, which we find in the book of Galatians, or the royal law in James chapter two, and lays the foundation for what we've called new covenant theology, an emphasis and a priority on the Lord Jesus Christ and on his laws over the laws of the old covenant. And it's very interesting that the noble lessees has that, for example, In their discussion of divorce, which they discuss, they say, in the old covenant, we were allowed to divorce, but in the new covenant, we are not allowed to remarry or to ever leave our wives. That's very interesting that they're so detailed on these laws and comparison, old covenant, new covenant, old covenant, new covenant. And they followed that document so well that as he puts in the book, on the bottom of page 63, the first column, As he puts in the book, they were so well known by their faith that sometimes if the Catholics found a man who was particularly holy, they would simply call him a Waldensian or a Leonist or whatever name was current at the time. And Wiley covers that as well. Waldensian almost became a title given to those people who were specially devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, in this book... He describes not only their doctrine, he mentions the noble Lessees, and more than that, he discusses the history of the Waldensians. And you would think the Waldensians began with Waldo, but I already told you that it at least began with the Noble Lessees, which came before Waldo was born. In one of the Pope's subjects, Renko, in 1640, that's 500 years later, Renko looks back in time and says, when did these Waldensians start? When did they come here? And this is Renko, who is no friend of the Waldensians. He's a Catholic. He hates the Waldensians, and his book is attacking them. And what he says is, quote, they were not a new sect in the 9th century. The 9th century is the 800s. That means... 300 years before Waldo, they were not new. And this gentleman, John Christian, in giving a history of the Baptists says, actually, you can trace them back to 325 AD. Another source said, it's possible they could be traced back to the apostolic times. So are we giving a history of the Waldensians or are we giving a history of the church? Perhaps we're giving a history Of the First Baptists, and Vedder does say the Waldensians were proto Baptists, that is, Baptists before the Baptists were here. It's encouraging to find such marks there. Let me read to you what their youth groups were like. The Waldensians possessed the New Testament before any other groups. That's page 18 by Wiley. And listen to this the youth of the Waldensians. Now, this is before the time of printing and these people were mainly farmers. And so he describes their life for a number of pages. And then at this point, he describes the piety of the youth. The youth who here sat at the feet of the learned elders used as their textbook, the holy scriptures. Not only did they study this book, but they were required to commit to memory whole gospels or epistles. Doesn't that sound like a great youth group? What do you do from Thursday or Friday, 4 to 6 p.m.? Oh, we're memorizing Ephesians. Is it any wonder that when we're about to read of their devotion and the fact that it carried on for hundreds of years, it came from nurseries like this? Well, they did have a number of remarkable persecutions starting as early back as the 1100s. But the persecutions go on so often, and you can read if you read the whole copy, that I'm only going to give you a few stories of the persecutions of the Waldensians. In 1332 or thereabouts, before Wycliffe was martyred, before Wycliffe died, what we learned about last week with the life of John Wycliffe. Before Wycliffe died, for translating the Bible, Wiley makes the point that Waldo actually began vernacular Bible translations before Wycliffe. He also mentions that there were 30 persecutions. Are you listening to that? 30 in a row. So it's not only one broad persecution, but it was a series of persecutions that carried on in these churches. Well, because they were a poor group, they were persecuted in their valleys. And as farmers or as herdsmen, as ranchers, as mainly living off of the soil, they were persecuted in their mountain fortress. Let me give you the story of a man named Jean-Louis Pascal. Jean-Louis Pascal was a young man and he was a Catholic, but then he was led to Christ by a knight. A knight led him to Christ, and he decided to become a preacher of the gospel. Well, he's still young. Here's a picture of Pascal. He's still young. He meets a beautiful girl and says, I want to marry you, but I'm called to be a pastor among the Waldensians. And when she hears that, she says, alas, you will be so near to Rome and so far from me she feared because anytime you get near to Rome, there's going to be great danger because the Inquisition will be going on. That is the persecution of the Roman religion against the Christians. Sure enough, they've departed and never saw each other again. When he began preaching this Pascal, Jean Pascal, he was interrupted during his sermon by the Marquis who interrupted the church service, dismissed all the members, and threw the pastor into the dungeon. He was confined there for eight months and then taken on a long journey to be examined. During this journey, he was, quote, subjected to terrible sufferings, chained to a gang of prisoners, the handcuffs being so tight that they cut into the flesh. For nine days, he walked on the roads, sleeping on the earth. The stench of the dungeon in which he was thrown almost suffocated him. And then, as he is thrown in prison and left there for months, his brother, Bartolomeo, who had been a Waldensian as well, came to him and said, It was quite hideous to see him, this is his brother writing, with his bare head and his hands and his arms lacerated by the cords with which he was bound, like one being led away to be burned. I advanced to him to hold him and I sank to the ground. My brother, he said to me, if you are a Christian, why do you distress yourself this way? Do you not know that a leaf falls to the ground only by the will of God? Comfort yourself in Christ Jesus, for the present troubles are not worthy to be compared with the glory to come. And though I was a Romanist, I took strength from this. And he said to me, Oh brother, the danger in which you are involved gives me more distress than the sufferings that I endure. Did you follow that? His brother was a Catholic or had become a Catholic and he tries to plead with him. No, no, you can, I want to save you. And Pascal said, the fact that you are living in a false religion is a far greater distress to me than the fact that I am going to die and be persecuted. And certainly he did die. He bore that affliction until finally he writes just before he was killed, quote, my state is this, he writes to his fiance. I feel my joy increase every day. To his fiancée that he has not seen and will not see. My joy increases every day as I approach nearer the hour in which I shall be offered. A sweet smelling sacrifice to the Lord Jesus Christ, my faithful savior. Yea, so inexpressible is my joy that I seem to myself to be free from captivity. And I am prepared to die for Christ not only once, but 10,000 times if it were possible. And he goes on. In a letter like that. Ladies, what would you give to have a man like that? Who writes a letter like that? Who knows where his heart ought to be? Well, this story of the Waldensians is a story of persecution over many hundreds of years. Because, as I mentioned, it's difficult to tell where they begin. It almost sounds like it's the story of a persecuted remnant. An underground church. A group of believers that is staying faithful to Christ Though they were persecuted, Augustine, though he was a great Christian, did many good things. Persecuted a group named the Donatists, who were baptizing believers only. Perhaps there was some connection between the Donatists and later on their spiritual sons and daughters, now called the Waldensians. They were tortured. Here is the narration of a pastor named Leger. Pastor Leger was tortured but escaped. He eventually made it to Switzerland, where Christians were not persecuted, and he wrote a book recounting the terrible tortures that that had gone through at that time. Let me give you just a few of what he writes about. From the narration of Lager, little children were torn from the arms of their mother, clasped by their feet, dashed against the rocks held by soldiers and torn in pieces. I'm not reading the full account because the language is so graphic. Their mangled bodies were thrown on the highways. The sick and the aged were burned alive in their dwellings. This is the pastor writing about the church members of his flock. And if you read the whole account, he was there with them during this, experiencing some of these tortures. He eventually escaped. Some had their hands and arms and legs cut off, fire applied to the blood to stanch the bleeding and prolong their suffering. Some were cooked alive, some were disemboweled or tied to trees in their own orchards, and their hearts were cut out. Some were mutilated, others the brains were boiled and eaten by cannibals. Some were fastened into their furrows that is tied down to their fields and plows were driven over them. Others were buried alive. Listen to this. Fathers were marched to death with the heads of their sons suspended round their necks. Parents were compelled to look on where their children were outraged and massacred. And then Wiley comes in and says, we must stop here. We cannot proceed with the awful narration. And he goes on to say... Other things are too terrible, I can't even write. And I toned down the language. But what he says in the pages preceding and following is, they were given chances to recant. Many chances. This is one of many of the persecutions that came on these Christians. (laughs) And I would remind you in this, when their children were being killed, when their homes were being burned, they cried out to God. And sometimes God saved them, that's coming up. But he did not always save them. Sometimes he said, the best thing for you is to allow you to go right into my presence. And those who preach the prosperity religion need to look into the pages of history and say, if, if you have a God that always makes you happy, then who were these people worshiping? The tortures were prolonged. Literally, did the Waldensians suffer all the things of which the apostle speaks in Hebrews 11. They were stoned. They were sawn asunder. They were tempted. They were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy he Wiley says, this man Wiley did not only write this book. He actually wrote somewhere around 2,000 pages describing the history of the Christian church. So this is a historian, and he's actually looking over all church history up to 1800. And he writes right there on that page that the persecutions that the Waldensians suffered may be the greatest in the history of the Christian church. And yet, their numbers Grew, because as he describes just after this, Catholic um, census takers described almost a million Waldensians in these valleys, many more than had been there 400 years earlier, and they were amazed. And the the popes and their uh, bishops would commonly talk and say. No matter how hard we persecute them, their numbers grow. They don't shrink. Well, as Wiley says on the first page of this book, he says, the history of the Waldensians is not only history of great love for Christ. It is the the story of the love. It is the story of freedom of conscience and freedom of religion. And so I would give to you another story. That in 1655, 1655, as I said, this is almost the story of the church. In 1655, Captain Joshua Genovello, a young man living in the Valley of Rora, under the hills, uh, under the shadow of a massive mountain that formed a wall against the Catholics on one side, <clears throat> Genovello was attacked. By Pianezza, The Marquis de Pianezza promised the Pope, if I get rid of all the Christians, what will you do for me? And the Pope promised him a great reward. And so he said, I'll take care of them. These men don't know what it is to see real soldiers. And so he gathered together 500. 500 soldiers in 1655. And he attacked them. But I mentioned the mountain fortress at the beginning. Well, the mountains were formed in such a way that... To get into the valleys, depending on which valley, in the Piedmontese area, to get into several of the valleys, there were only small passageways. A rock rising on one side and a rock on the other. Or to enter from another way, it would be a small path along the edge of a mountain where you could fall down on one side and the other side is the mountain itself. So Genovello, with seven men, repels 500 so much so that the Catholics say, God is fighting for the Waldensians. But apparently Satan was fighting for the Catholics because Pianeso turns around and within a few days brings 600 men back. He's, he writes, there will be no faith kept with heretics. When Gianna Vella wrote him a letter and said, let's have peace, let's have peace. And so he attacks the first time there were seven men, Giannovello and six other men. And the description is is just fascinating. He hid himself in the mountains as they're coming through the pass. And they would shoot bows, arrows, and rifles. And then run on hidden paths to get ahead of the army and shoot again. The army turned and ran. 600 now in the second attack. And as with the first attack, they repelled them all. The third attack... Because Pianezza is not done, he says, I'm going to win. The third attack, he has 800 men. He comes back, but the Marquis de Pianaza, even after he's beaten, beaten again the third time in a row, without the Waldensians le- losing a single man, the Marquis de Pianaza does not see the finger of God, but is only angry even more. He comes back the fourth time. Now, follow this, it's gone from 500 to 600. To 800 men. On the fourth time. How many do you think it will be? 8,000. A little increase. He decides we're not playing anymore. I'm going to kill them. He's inflamed with anger. And he attacks with 8,000 men. He sends a Captain Mario after him. But by the providence of God. Captain Mario attacks two hours earlier. He was supposed to wait. But he attacked too early. And in an amazing Victory! the Waldensians sent 8,000 men away. And so in the fifth attack, he assembles 10,000 troops, 10,000 against a few hundred villagers living as farmers. And with 10,000 men, he attacks again. This time, Genovello realizes that he cannot guard the position he's at and he, encourages all the people to flee into the mountains. This was a common tactic of the Waldensians over the hundreds of years. They would hide in different caves. They would run into the mountains seeking peace until they saw the Catholics withdraw or until they would fight and beat them. This time they were not all able to withdraw in time. And Giannavello's wife and three daughters were captured along with many others. Pianesa writes back to Giannavello and says... I command you for the last time to renounce your heresy. This is the only hope of obtaining the pardon of your prince, that is the king and the pope, and of saving the life of your wife and daughters, who are now my prisoners, and whom, if you continue stubborn, I will burn alive. What would you do? Your wife and three daughters. What would you do? Would you say, okay, I'll renounce my faith because really I'm not renouncing it in my heart. I'm just doing it in public so I can save my wife and daughters. And then as soon as I have them back, I'll run away and say, "Ha ha, I'm really a Christian." Gianavello writes back. To these ferocious threats Gianavello magnanimously and promptly replied, "Quote, there are no torments so terrible, no death so barbarous that I would not choose rather than deny my savior. Your threats cannot cause me to renounce my faith." They only strengthen me in it. Should the Marquis de Pianaza cause my wife and daughters to pass through the fire, it can only consume their bodies, but their souls I commend to God, trusting that he will have mercy on them and on mine, should it please him that I fall into his vicious hands. Giannavello goes back. He had, however, saved his infant baby boy, and he raises his infant boy. He goes back in the next chapter and fights and beats them. How can you explain that outside of the providence of God? He and this little band fight against them and beat them. And, and this brings out maybe one of the most remarkable lessons. That the Christian faith is one of peace, gentleness, and submission. And also what the Catholic said in that chapter, which I didn't read. He said, we thought These Waldensians were but men, and we found them to be lions. There's books worth of theology in that history. We fight for our wives and children, but we lay down anything for the gospel. And we don't love our wives and children more than our Lord Jesus. I think right there, you've just seen lived out in the pages of history what it means when our Lord said in Luke 14, 26, whoever does not hate his wife and father and mother and brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. May God give us that love and faith and courage and manliness in our churches again today.